Hey everybody and welcome back. This is the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and housed on the Rebel Alliance Media Network. After you finish listening to this podcast, go and check out the Rebel Podcast. Uh, They've got loads of podcasts. They've got Fathers of the Faith for Covenant Kids, which uh, we've been listening to with my, uh, my own family. They've got a podcast almost every day of the week. They've got blogs and articles, and it's a great resource, and we're, uh, we're really happy to be, to be friends with them and to be, uh, be hosted on, uh, on their network as well. So go and check them out on, uh, on social media. Go and check out rebelalliancemedia.com. And get yourself resourced for the task of engaging with culture from a biblical perspective. This week's episode is a little different than uh, than we usually do. So we, we've got Ezra Press, as a lot of you know. That's the publishing ministry, the, public, the publishing wing of the Ezra Institute. We put out books because there's a, uh, there's a permanence, there's a, a longevity, there's something, uh, something tangible about a book, and we... Uh, We've been doing that. We've found that that's an effective and useful way that uh, that a lot of people um, that a lot of people use, and that really gets uh, gets to stick in your mind. Uh, so we've been putting out plenty of books through Ezra Press, and we're actually working on recording um, audiobooks. So this week's this week's podcast, we thought maybe we'd get a twofer. So we recorded the audiobook. We put it up on Facebook Live. You can check that out on the uh, the Ezra Institute Facebook page, uh, on the Rebel Rebel Alliance Facebook page. Uh, you can check out that live reading, and you're also going to get it here. That's uh, that's the content of this week's podcast. So I hope you enjoy this. Listen in. Remember, this is for an audiobook, so you're going to hear uh, throat clearing, false starts, restarts, so that uh, there's enough material in there so that we can get the actual final finished product. This is the uh, this is us taking you behind the scenes, and I hope that uh, you enjoy it. All right, here we go. Four mission. The Need for Scriptural Cultural Theology by Joseph Boot. Copyright 2018, Ezra Press. Introduction. To call this short booklet Four Mission is not an attempt at rhetorically stacking the deck. I know of no serious Christian who would describe themselves as against mission as such. And yet the title is an acknowledgement that means matter as much as ends, and moreover that words matter. Just as genuine Christians are for justice, truth, and faithfulness, we are all for mission. But what is that mission? What are we on mission for? What is the goal? I would suggest that the mission of God's people is ultimately the faithful worship of the triune God in every aspect and sphere of life. As individuals and as families, neighborhoods, cities, nations, and cultures— Human beings are made to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I'm going to try that again, because we're recording here. Human beings are made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The mission of God's people is thus intimately tied to the purpose for which we were created, and therefore the biblical teaching of the kingdom of God. The term mission as I am using it does not refer simply to the practice of churches sending missionaries to other parts of the world, 
one aspect of the mission, but to the calling and purpose of God's people in the earth. This is clearly a broader and more foundational application of the term, one that includes global missionary work, but which focuses on understanding the way that Christians, as God's vicegerents, live out the gospel in every area of life. This living out is our mission, our act of worship. It finds expression in every area of life, and the way we think about that mission says something important about our understanding both of the nature of worship and of God. The decline of a robust, full, vital, and applied Christianity in the West is clearly evidenced in our society's preponderance of ungodly laws, apostate educational practices, secular political outlook, and overtly neo-pagan arts and entertainment, to name just a few areas. As I hope to show in these brief pages, Christians have allowed, and sometimes even been instrumental in furthering this decline. An impoverished understanding of our mission has increasingly led us to either abandon these key areas of life and call- <clears throat> I'm going to try that again. Oh, hey, Ben. <clears throat> An impoverished understanding of our mission has increasingly led us to either abandon these key areas of life and culture in the name of true piety, or to uncritically adopt or synthesize them with our faith in the name of relevance or even wisdom. In either case, we have tacitly accepted an un- <clears throat> in either case we have tacitly accepted an unbelieving view of the world as normative, and once that has happened, we are in urgent need of fundamental redirection and reformation. Following a squandered lead and brutal defeat in the 1960 NFL championship game, Green Bay Packers head coach Vince Lombardi implemented a training regimen focused on first principles. Gentlemen, he told the three dozen professional athletes gathered around him. This is a football. If Western Christians would have any hope of impacting our society with the truth, freedom, and beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to recollect where we are and what we are here for. We are on a cosmos-sized fi- we are on a cosmos-sized field of conflict, not for a game, but for a battle between the kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness. As such, we must be prepared by God's grace to get. <clears throat> As such, we must be prepared by God's grace to get to the root of what our mission is, and if necessary, radically reorient our lives and ministries accordingly. This is not a cause for despondency, but for hope. Because of the power of the gospel and omnipotent working of the Holy Spirit, there is every reason for confidence that God will win our nations back to himself. But again, means matter, and in God's eternal wisdom, he has called and commissioned us, his people, as ambassadors of the kingdom to make disciples of the nations, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded. This is our mission, this is true worship, and we have only begun to recover the full extent of its power, scope, and glory. All right, that was the introduction. Churchianity or Christianity? The impact of the Christian faith upon the cultural history of the West is inescapably visible all around us. From the church buildings on every Toronto city block to the spires at the centre of every English village, the geography of town and country is a testament to a once vital faith. Indeed, Christianity's formative religious power is not just around us to observe in buildings and monuments, it continues to actually inhabit the people of the Western world, even when they're unaware of it, discreetly hidden in their language, customs, and common assumptions. 
From some of the greatest works of art, literature, music, and architecture that the West ever produced, and which can still thrill the heart, to the names of hospitals and schools, in fact, embedded in the mottos of some of the most prestigious universities, the cultural vestiges of Christianity are ubiquitous. And yet, it is no longer controversial to assert that the Christian Church has, for the most part, ceased to be a truly motivating force in the affairs of Western civilization. As the noted Christian philosopher Calvin Seervelt has put it, a foreign dynamic and the neo-pagan spirit of the Renaissance is shaping the culture of the world at the moment, but because God and the Church are dead to the world, there is inevitably come an all-encompassing, frustrating loss of order, certainty, and security in the world, and that is disturbing even to those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness." End quote. In recent years, with this clear abandonment of a Christian vision for culture happening at a rapid pace all around us, and the insecurity it has produced, some Christians have been waking up to the fact that there is a pressing and vital question to be asked. What is the nature of the relationship of the <clears throat> What is the nature of the relationship of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the society in which we live? To state the question in a slightly different way, what is the relationship of God's word revelation to the Christian's life in the world? It is a sign of hope for the church that there are those who have begun to consider carefully again the character of the relationship between the gospel and culture, perhaps with a degree of urgency not seen in many years. It is a prescient issue, because the conclusions Christians reach will determine the essential character of the mission of God's people in our day. I say this renewed interest is a sign of hope because, generally speaking, and admitting of notable exceptions, this subject is one that Western evangelicals have not pursued with focused seriousness for several generations. <clears throat> As a result of this revived concern, a fresh line of thought is opening up, calling forth an essentially new specialization within theology, cultural theology. As my colleague Andrew Sandlin ably explains the expanding opportunity, quote, quote, An emerging specialty in theology is cultural theology. It is defined as the study of what God's full revelation teaches about culture and applying that teaching to pressing cultural issues. Because the issues of our time have become specialized, the study of revelation must include a specialized concern for culture. Of course, culture has been around as long as man has, and therefore cultural theology is not a specialty whose need has only recently evolved. However, dramatic developments of culture in modern times, in for example ideology, technology, jurisprudence, medicine, economics, and the arts, press serious Christians for a coherent grasp of godly truth to address and govern them. For instance, what does God's revelation have to say to the political views known as socialism, liberalism, conservatism, or libertarianism? Or ideologies like Marxism, feminism, Islamism, transgenderism, and white privilege? What about new technologies like stem cell research, genetic manipulation, cloning, transhumanism, and surrogate motherhood? Consider theories of law, originalism, progressivism, sociological law, utilitarian law, and natural law. These developments... I'm going to try that again. Again, there's like a family reunion going on out here. Everyone's laughing and wrecking up my time. These developments, contemporary or traditional, and many others, require a distinctly Christian evaluation. End quote. 
This need for Christians to turn to God's Word revelation for clear guidance in such complex matters from the world of everyday cultural experience simply expresses another aspect of the constant necessity for believers to be both informed, that is, inwardly guided from the center of their being, and reformed or reshaped by God's Word, when our attitudes and thinking in any area of life are found contrary to that Word. In this case, it must be asked how accurately our attitudes and thinking regarding the gospel's relationship to culture reflects the teaching and concerns of God's word revelation. The three interrelated senses of the word of God. To speak in this way about the word revelation of God is to confess that in every area of our lives, we are subject to that word. <clears throat> I'm going to try that again. To speak in this way about the word revelation of God is to confess that in every area of our lives we are subject to that word. That confession addresses three primary realities. First, we are subject to the creation word of God, which called all things into being and holds all things together. We daily encounter the power and glory of God's word for creation. Creation is a concretization or instantiation of the powerful word of God. In it, we discern laws and norms that God has established for all creation from the very beginning. The mediator of that creation word is the eternal Son, John 1, 1-5. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the incarnate word of God. As the second person of the Godhead, he is the historical manifestation of the word through whom all things were made. And thirdly, the Bible holds a central place in the Christian life because it is the inscripturated word of God that tells us of the person of Christ his creative and redemptive work in history, republishing the norms of the creation word so as to make crystal clear in a fallen world what God requires of us. <clears throat> it was a long sentence. All three of these manifestations of the word of God are involved in each other, presuppose one another, and cannot be artificially divided or separated from one another as we address the relationship of God's word to culture. Whoops. In fact, they cannot be properly understood except as a unity within a coherence of meaning established for creation by God. For example, we see in all forms of false teaching that a Christ separated from his creative work and the scriptures. <coughs> for example, we see in all forms of false teaching that a Christ separated from his creative work and the scriptures produces an imaginary Jesus in the likeness of sinful man's desires. Equally, the Bible abstracted from the concrete world of creation and history, or from the living and resurrected Lord, is reduced to just another piece of human literature. And in the same way, a cosmic order separated from the eternal Son of God and His inscripturated Word is reduced by philosophers and scientists to a mass of sensory data or brute facts and formal abstract ideas impervious to true interpretation without unity or coherence of meaning. To properly understand God's world, we need both the word incarnate and inscripturated, otherwise the criterion for true insight into the meaning of all things is lost. The unity of God's word to us in creational and redemptive revelation speaks volumes about the undivided character of our calling. <clears throat> the unity of God's word to us in creational and redemptive revelation speaks volumes about the undivided character of our calling in the world in terms of that word. The need for a scriptural culture. Oh man. <clears throat> the need for a scriptural theology and philosophy of culture. 
because the Word of God is of this creative, formative, and unitive character, it is, <clears throat> it is that which must constitute the foundation of all truly Christian thought for each area of life. This is crucial because many of the questions being raised by cultural theologians are different from those of the more familiar disciplines like dogmatic or systematic theology. Some might say that these questions belong equally, or perhaps particularly, to the domain of philosophy, and are therefore part of the task of developing a Christian philosophy of life and culture. <clears throat> I am not concerned to quibble over these classifications, except to suggest that the questions dealt with in theology and philosophy cannot be neatly separated from each other into hermetically sealed domains that never touch or overlap. This is because theology will always be carried out in terms of underlying concepts and categories of thought that have a philosophical and religious character. Underlying both disciplines, theology and philosophy, is a fundamental religious orientation and faith perspective that, for the Christian, must be controlled and directed by the Word of God. Moreover, it is a grave mistake to think that it is only the professional theologians who can have genuine access to the truth of the Word and be permitted to apply it to the world. Philosophy, looking at the totality of reality, asks about the true nature, origin, and relationship of all things and events. Scripture declares the fundamental answer to that question, which answer must govern Christian thought in philosophy. At the same time, Christians need to grapple with all the particular challenges within the culture from about <clears throat> At the same time, Christians need to grapple with all the particular challenges within the culture from a robustly scriptural standpoint and so must examine the biblical material as a starting point. And so, in a very real way, the task before the Church is one of developing a faithful cultural theology, because we are dealing with our faith, the teaching of Scripture, and our confession of Christ as these relate to the culture around us. Christian theology and philosophy need to work together in submission to God's inscripturated word in this endeavor. So whether we characterize that task as working out a scriptural cultural theology or philosophy, <clears throat> so whether we characterize that task as working out a scriptural cultural theology or philosophy is less important than articulating clearly for the church in our time the relationship of God's word and the gospel to culture itself. Until we do that, there will be confusion in the church about the Christian mission and an ongoing decline of the impact of our faith on society two dominant tendencies regarding the mission of God's people. Oh. Hey guys, Peter, Luke, Kin, good to see you. It should come as no surprise that something is amiss amongst mo <clears throat> It should come as no surprise that something is amiss amongst modern evangelical churches, whether reformed, charismatic, pentecostal, baptist or any other stripe. They are not providing an adequate or consistent response to the challenges of <clears throat> They are not providing an adequate or consistent response to the challenges of an increasingly anti-Christian culture. On the whole, evangelical leaders seem poorly prepared to equip God's people for the pressing task of applying biblical truth to all of life in an often hostile cultural context. Indeed, part of the problem is that not all are agreed whether we should apply scriptural truth to all areas of life and thought. I discern two common tendencies in response to the question of the gospel's relationship to culture, and by extension the mission of God's people who declare <clears throat> and by extension the mission of God's people who declare and live that gospel in the world, and they are linked by common root problems. These tendencies in the church today can be seen first 
in those who greatly overrate the place and role of the institutional church and its offices, thus neglecting or even rejecting the idea that other spheres, institutions, and forms of cultural life are realms subject to God's word. Second, there are those who greatly overrate the role of the state or political life in general and its responsibilities and <clears throat> and its responsibilities and functions in working out the con- come on <laughs> and its responsibilities and functions in working out the kingdom purposes of God in history. You guys know what I mean. If I weren't uh, trying to record this for later on, I could just breeze right by it, right by it. In the first case, the visible institutional church is essentially identified and conflated with the city and kingdom of God, and so what develops, despite a <clears throat> and so what develops, despite a common insistence that they are gospel-centered, is a radically church-centered faith, what I am calling churchianity. This group is at best disinterested in Christ's manifest lordship over any other sphere of life or institution, and at worst they are hostile to it. Those in this camp are normally biblically orthodox in soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, whilst pietistic and often retreatist when it comes to culture. In general, they want little or no engagement with society, arts, and civil government from a distinctly Christian standpoint, especially in the areas of law and education, and any talk of redeeming or transforming culture is seen as out of bounds. To the extent that these leaders do engage culturally, their involvement is usually described as being for the purposes of evangelism, rather than for any broader kingdom purpose or cultural good in its own right. At the very least, such non-ecclesiastical activities are carefully distinguished in such a manner as to. De- <clears throat> At the very least, such non-ecclesiastical activities are carefully distinguished in such a manner as to disclose that they are not gospel issues. For these believers, the gospel essentially refers to a narrow set of affirmations about the cross, the new birth, the justification of individuals, and their escape from hell. The immediate result is the truncation of the Christian mission to the task of getting more people as- The immediate result is the truncation of the Christian mission to the task of getting more people saved and into the church so that they can go to heaven. To such believers, the Christian life is reduced to personal evangelism, personal piety, personal growth, and personal blessing. The Christian calling to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and the reconciliation of all things to him is conspicuously diminished in this paradigm. There are obvious elements of truth in this position regarding... <clears throat> there are obvious... <clears throat> There are obvious elements of truth in this position regarding the importance of justification, the new birth, and God's final judgment on sin, and this obviously includes the salvation of individuals. But is it really a full-orbed and robustly biblical Christianity? This pietistic but broadly theologically conservative worldview produces immature believers, attending churches where they can remain unchallenged week after week, calling on God for personal blessing or to increase their faith and obedience but with little or no conception of the scope and grandeur of the gospel or the transforming power of the kingdom of God for all of life. The birth of a baby is a wonderful thing, but it would be a tragedy if a baby did not mature over the years into an adult. Such church communities are often marked by frustration and cultural impotence, where congregants are endlessly urged to be holy whilst waiting for the parousia. Yet the average congregant has little or no idea of how to relate his faith in Christ the Lord Let's try that again. Yet the average congregant has little or no idea how to relate his faith in Christ the Lord, the scriptures, and the call to holiness 
i.e. to sanctify life to God, to his marriage and family, his children's education, his vocation, recreational pursuits or civic responsibility, in short, to culture. Salvation, he is told, is for his soul and inner life, whilst the kingdom of God is something that is really coming at the end of the world and so belongs to another age. As a result, the Church Institute is progressively viewed as the only place where God's rule and Christ's lordship are expressed in the earth, especially in the form of the spiritual disciplines of individual Christians, congregational worship, and liturgy. Furthermore, on this view, to really serve God or to be in ministry means either being a pastor, holding office in the institutional church, or being involved in some activity governed and prescribed by the church. As such, there is a glaring and radical sacred-secular divide running through the whole life of such Christians. At the other end of the spectrum, in the second grouping, we have a growing tendency within profession... <clears throat> start that again. There's lemon in that water. That's delightful. At the other end of the spectrum, in the second grouping, we have a growing tendency within professing evangelicalism, especially amongst the young, to greatly underrate the importance of the institutional church and its administration of the sacraments, the preaching of God's word, and church discipline. Here, respect for church confessions, historic teaching, and authority is dangerously minimized or set aside in favor of a freewheeling antinomian approach where the church's institutional role and in government in the Christian life is seen as unnecessary or outmoded, a patriarchal religion of life and freedom-sapping formalism. <clears throat> These professing Christians rightly detect a problem with cultural abandonment and retreatism in the churches. <clears throat> These professing Christians rightly detect a problem with cultural abandonment and retreatism in the churches in which they often grew up, perceiving that the gospel must involve more than the salvation of souls, being present for worship on Sunday, getting the liturgy right, and attending the Wednesday night Bible study for personal discipleship. They believe that God's kingdom must be broader than the walls of the church, one's personal prayer life and piety, that it must impact the world for the good in real and tangible ways in the here and now. At the same time, however, the tendency amongst these believers in questioning whether a pious and retreatist gospel is big enough is to shift the locus of hope and focus of life from the church institute to the institute of the state and its powerful apparatus, its civil laws and equalities legislation, that is, to a political enactment of social justice. Under the guiding influence of humanistic philosophy, social action, or what has been dubbed a social gospel, start to replace the centrality of Christ's atoning death, resurrection, and life-giving power. As a consequence, the kingdom of God is increasingly identified with persons, movements, and institutions pursuing social and economic equality. <clears throat> All right. As a consequence, the kingdom of God is increasingly identified with persons, movements, and institutions pursuing social and economic equality so that a kind of politicization of salvation occurs with the <clears throat> so that a kind of politicization of salvation occurs with the state functioning as de facto high priest in bringing about a secularized deliverance from oppression. Moralism and social action thus gradually eclipse justification by faith in Christ through God's grace alone, whilst a God-centered inward renewal producing outward transformation is replaced by external political coercion as the route to the kingdom. The church institute, its preaching and sacraments, then become almost peripheral to the so-called main task of saving abstract political identity groups like the poor 
and ending abstract social evils like inequality for the oppressed and other alleged victims of discrimination or ex exploitation. <clears throat> and other alleged victims of discrimination or exploitation, including the planet itself. Creation care, service to people in genuine need, and a heart for those oppressed by injustice are of serious concern in Scripture. However, the underlying philosophy that informs a Christianized drive for social justice is not scripturally rooted, resulting in a revised version of the Christian lexicon where the same words are imbued with very different meanings. Thus, these Christians regularly drift in a theologically liberal direction, as witnessed the emergent church movement. In extreme cases, the gospel of Christ becomes directly identified with egalitarian progressive political philosophy, where God's law and Christ's lordship in terms of scripture play little or no part. Instead of a familial and moral commitment to voluntary charity and social responsibility, we see political controls, punitive laws of confiscation, as well as judicial activism towards social and sexual liberation put forward as the answer for realizing the kingdom of God. In fact, for some, the gospel becomes practically indistinguishable from the neo-Marxist utopian vision of humanization for the biosphere by politics. Both of these bifurcating tendencies in modern evangelicalism, one identifying the kingdom with the church institute, the other with the political life and social planning of the state, share common root problems. The first is a failure to rightly identify the foundation of the Christian hope, which is neither the church institute itself nor the state and its activity, but the salvation and lordship of Jesus Christ himself over the totality of life as the one mediator between God and man. Both the church and the state are institutions with officers placed under God and his sovereignty which limit their role, power, and function. The very concept of an office in human culture presupposes service to a broader purpose and higher authority. The second problem is a mischaracterization of the nature of the church and the state, and thereby of the church's mission. The church institute cannot be directly identified with the kingdom of God, and therefore the Christian's calling extends well beyond the ministry of the church institution. To limit the kingdom of God to the church is to surrender culture to the enemies of God. As the Christian thinker S.U. Zoidema put it, he who ecclesiasticizes God's covenant makes the kingdom of God, insofar as he is able, sectarian, because he restricts it to a section of life. At the same time, however, the church is an important part of the kingdom. It cannot be made peripheral to the kingdom by reducing it to a servant or chaplain of the humanistic state doing its bidding, where scientific socio-political planning is confused with the kingdom of God. Instead, the church must witness scripturally and prophetically <clears throat> By the way, guys, if you have any questions about this, uh, this reading or this recording, um, type them in and I'll see if, uh, if we can get an answer for you at the end. Let us know if this is any fun for you and uh, we might do it again. Instead, the church must witness scripturally and prophetically to political power. When it becomes a handmaiden of the state, when it becomes a handmaiden of the state and an advocate of liberal progressivism, social justice, rather than biblical righteousness, it has forsaken its true character. Likewise, the state overreaches and violates its delimited role and office when, in parts-to-whole fashion, it seeks to absorb other spheres of life as departments of state, 
subject to state planning, control, and manipulation. A third problem, which has been with the Church from the time Greek philosophy impacted its theological development in the early centuries, is an implicit and destructive dualism that slices up reality into matter and spirit, nature and grace, secular and sacred, natural and supernatural, time and eternity, higher and lower, with one area perceived as lesser or evil and the other as higher or good. This tendency has resulted in a radical separation of creation and redemption, where redemption is essentially for the higher story of existence, spiritual life and historical cultural development and mutually reinforcing pattern of subservience to non-Christian culture, the nature or secular, on the one hand, and the abandonment of Christian culture building, grace or sacred, on the other. Both tendencies emphasize a part of this artificial duality. Surely, to grasp who Christ is at the root of all truth and meaning is to grasp the universal lordship of Christ and his marvelous call to his church to participate as co-workers with him in the restoration of all things to God, since we are now in Christ and have been given a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. As Seervelt has put it, quote, The totality of creation's meaning lies singly in Jesus Christ and his body. And this idea that the meaning of the individual and universe lies beyond both in the Son of God, that everything is meaningless, aimless, vain, unless it be set in Jesus Christ, that the crown of creation, humanity, because justly commanded by God to love the Lord with all our heart, all that is in us, that humanity is meaningful only if at work in the covenantal community of believers serving the realization of God's plan, recreation, reconciliation of all to God through Christ. It is this idea which shows that the struggle of history is between a newborn Shivatas Dei and the age-old dragon's Shivatatis Mundi. End quote. Given the clear biblical teaching concerning the person of Christ as the one from whom, through whom, and to whom all things exist, Romans 11.36, and knowing that he is reconciling everything to God the Father, Colossians 1.16-20, why is it that Christians seem to struggle to reach agreement about the mission of God's people? The message of the gospel is therefore centered in the declaration that this Jesus Christ is Lord and King over all the earth, over all cultures, peoples, and lands, and that he is calling all people to repentance and joyful obedience to the coming kingdom of God. In this volume, my primary concern is to address not the advocates of social justice, which I have considered in detail elsewhere, but the pietistic cultural retreatism amongst those who are largely theologically orthodox and who are advocates of a kind of churchianity, which I want to contrast with scriptural Christianity. For the sake of clarity, it'll help us to begin the discussion of churchianity with a typical example of how this problem manifests itself when the calling of Christians and the church in the world is discussed. I have to pause and reread these things because we're recording it for an audiobook. For anybody who's uh, who's late to the party, that's why I'm uh, I'm stopping and uh, restarting some of these things that I'm not satisfied with. For the sake of clarity, it will help us to begin the discussion of churchianity with a typical example of how this problem manifests itself when the calling of Christians and the church in the world is discussed. In a recent interview titled, On the Mission of the Church, the popular American pastor Mark Dever attempts to articulate the essence of the Christian's gospel-centered calling given the challenges in the culture. 
The program is very instructive as an illustration of what I have called churchianity. In a series of pithy statements, the sincerely evangelical Dever declares that the s- <clears throat> in a series of pithy statements, the sincerely evangelical Dever declares that the sum total of the Christian's calling is to make disciples and build churches. We also got to wait for these guys to stomp by with their tool belts on. They're doing the real work. The church is not clearly defined in the discussion, nor is the actual nature and scope of disciple-making. Dever is clear, however, that the central calling of the Christian is evangelism, by which he means telling people about Jesus so that they can be forgiven, saved from hell, and join the church. No distinction is made between the life and work of the church institute and the kingdom of God. According to Dever, Christianity goes forward by pastors raising up other pastors and sending them out. Well and good for pastors, but where does this vision of Christian mission leave parents and families, school teachers and truck drivers, business leaders and politicians, lawyers and doctors, housewives and farmers, scholars and architects, musicians and artists, cooks and builders, in the biblical calling to advance the gospel, other than attending church services, being a witness, and going to Bible study? Given Dever's implicit identification of the Church Institute with the Kingdom of God, Christians, he argues, are certainly allowed to pray about life issues and for local schools, etc., but their real work as God's people is evangelism and discipleship. Dever suggests he is all for parents being involved with the lives of their children and supporting marriage, but that does not mean he assumes we can work to impact social problems. Sorry. That does not mean he assumes we can work to impact social problems like gambling or reduce divorce rates in society. In any case, if the pastor attempts that with his time, he asks, who will preach the gospel? When Dever is specifically asked whether he would ever use the language of redeeming culture or transforming the city, he answers forcefully, no. That would only discourage people, he argues since Dever sees no indication in the scriptures that cultural transformation is promised when Christians preach and live out the gospel. This is an incredible assertion for any student of scripture to make. The following scriptures warrant a serious consideration in regard to the transforming impact of God's word in our lives and in cultural life. Genesis 1, 26-28, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 110, 1-4, Isaiah 9, 7, Daniel 2, 46-49, Daniel 3, 26 to 30, Daniel 4, 34 to 36, Daniel 6, 18 to 28, Jonah 3, 5 to 10, Habakkuk 2, 14, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Luke 13, 18 to 21, John 12, 20 to 32, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, Ephesians 1, 10, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Hebrews 2, 6 to 13, Revelation 1, 4-6. These illustrative texts concerning God's sovereignty, the calling of the covenant people, and Christ's authority, power, and expanding kingdom clearly lead us to expect, as has been seen in the past, great cultural impact when believers are walking in obedience to God and serving the purposes of Christ's reign, which culminates in the consummation of his kingdom. Following his denial that the Bible teaches cultures will be transformed by the gospel, It is disappointing to hear Dever and Lehman engage in disparaging the venerable Abraham Kuyper and the vision he articulated of the Lordship of Christ transforming all of life. 
Dever asks what good either these teachings or Kuiper's tenure as Prime Minister ever did the Netherlands. This is an astonishingly short-sighted attitude toward Kuiper's remarkable and influential legacy. Dever appears to believe that because there are lots of Christians being faithful in various places, yet not seeing big changes in public cultural life, cultures aren't changed by the gospel. This belief is a non-sequitur and lacks insight into what is happening at the religious root of life when a person's heart is reoriented by the Holy Spirit to serve Christ with all their being. Is the open hostility to a faithful Christian politician and theologian like Kuiper the result of Dever's restriction of the... <clears throat> Is the open hostility to a faithful Christian politician and theologian like Kuiper the result of Dever's restriction of the gospel to a limited section of life? Zoidema is to the point, quote, An integral Christian politics, an integral Christian view of the state, which as such play up to neither the ecclesiasticization nor the secularization of life outside the church. These are a thorn in the flesh for the ecclesiasticized churchman and the politicized politician, end quote. The inescapable reality is that human beings are cultural creatures. Everything we do in and with God's creation is a work of culture-making, and therefore the salvation of an individual and their subsequent faithfulness to God in their personal and family life does affect an immediate change in culture as they live in the world. The culture of the home is altered when a man surrenders his life to Christ. The culture of a business begins to change when its leader orients his heart towards God's word. The culture of a school begins to change when the head teacher turns to Christ and is directed by the scriptures. Indeed, everything in which the true believer everything in which the true believer is involved as they live out the truth in terms of God's word is powerfully impacted. Yet Dever states with satisfaction that he has had political figures come to him at his Washington DC church saying that they thought they had come to the capital to impact politics as Christians, but they had since realized at Dever's church that they had really been brought to Washington to learn about being church and a good disciple. The church-centered character of Dever's understanding of the gospel is thus reinforced in the starkest terms. <clears throat> Dever certainly affirms Christ's lordship as a theological idea, but materially and practically, for everyday life outside of the church, it fades from view. This is because, as far as Dever's concerned, he can just cooperate and collaborate with non-believers in all the <clears throat> This is because as far as Dever is concerned, he can just cooperate and collaborate with non-believers in all the ordinary stuff of life, since he sees no directional distinction in what believers and non-believers are doing in their everyday activities. Thus for Dever, there's no need for, nor indeed is there any such thing as, Christian newspapers, trade unions, etc., and there's certainly no need for Christian political parties and institutions. Naturally, he also argues it is simply wrong to say the true way to educate children is Christian education. The goal of Christianizing anything for Dever is badly misguided, though he never clearly explains actually why. There is a profound irony in American pastors using their pulpits and religious freedom. <clears throat> there is a profound irony in American pastors using their pulpits and religious freedom to attack the Christianization of culture and the application of Scripture to the totality of life given that their nation was effectively founded by evangelical Puritans and was radically shaped throughout its history, in all its public institutions, by Christianity, Moses himself being engraved on Supreme Court buildings. In fact, it was the Christianized nature of American culture, however imperfect, that gave men like Dever their freedom to be pastors and to witness to the gospel without legal hindrance. 
Moreover, there is a disturbing presumption and arrogance that attends church leaders identifying the church institute with the kingdom of God. Zoidema's challenge here is profound and searching. Quote, the sin of identification of church with the kingdom of God, of church with covenant, of church with heart religion, whereby for all intents and purposes this church, as it were, coincides with itself and Christ's coincides <clears throat> whereby for all intents and purposes this church, as it were, coincides with itself and Christ coincides with the church, is all the more serious since it once and for all blocks the Christian's freedom and the free reign of God's word over the ecclesiastical offices. Humanly speaking, nothing is so stubborn and so hopeless, so tyrannical and so anarchistic, because nothing is so pious, seemingly, as this ecclesiasticizing of the Bible and religion. End quote. Despite the privilege of a remarkable Christian heritage in the United States, Dever piously argues that the future will surely be dark, like the days of Noah. As such, instead of speaking of cultural transformation, he says, quote, I wish you would just share the gospel with that person on the bus. End quote. In this statement, we see the appearance of a radically truncated gospel and clear question begging regarding the nature of the gospel mission, which is in fact the matter in question. It is certainly true that the calling of the church is centered in the gospel. But what is the nature and character of the gospel of the kingdom, and what are its implications for us as God's people? Do they go beyond personal evangelism and adding people to the institutional church? Dever's conclusion regarding the mission of the church is that we don't redeem and transform anything cultural. <clears throat> Thus, his objective is to spend time and resources to establish churches that will do witnessing and discipleship. Again, these are no doubt critical tasks for Christians, but for Dever, this alone is what advances Christianity. We have in this interview, then, a very good example of what I am arguing is modern and popular evangelical churchianity. Calvin Seervelt's caution is telling, quote, Many Christians have been content to witness to the world, vigorously preaching Christ crucified, but holding back from involvement in the culture because it is so immoral and demoralizing. Yet it is not the full gospel. It has the ascetic reticence of John the Baptizer, who preached... Re <clears throat> it has the ascetic... <clears throat> it has the ascetic reticence of John the Baptizer, who preached repentance from sin and counseled moral rectitude in whatever profession you were in, but stopped there. John the Baptizer's disciples fasted, and Christ did not condemn it. He just commanded his disciples, who freely ate and drank, to fashion new wineskins. Seerveld goes on to note that whoever is tempted to settle for such an introverted, pietistic Christianity, and it is an easier answer. <clears throat> and it is an easier answer for the older and wiser believers, it is not the Reformed tradition. Which is to say, such a perspective is not found at the root of the scriptural faith emerging from the most consistent stream of the Reformation. Moreover, the culture around us cannot be helped by such distortion of the biblical mandate. None of this is an appeal to politicize religion, as though salvation were by politics, because a politicized gospel is as great an evil as an ecclesiasticized faith. However, to divorce religion from politics or from culture in general is a sheer fiction and can no more be done than separating religion from the church. All right, guys, that's the end of that chapter. Thanks a lot for being with us. Uh, like I said, this uh, this recording is for the uh, the audiobook 
The book is called For Mission, The Need for a Scriptural Cultural Theology. Joe Boots, the author, put out by Ezra Press, and we'll be producing the audiobook. Uh, we'll be producing it this summer, and we'll let you know as soon as that's available. So guys, thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you soon.